introduce uh, Matt. I, I've known Matt personally now for uh, 20 years, and um, when I tell you that this guy, you know, he's like the watchdog of chiropractic. If you're a Facebook friend with him, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But he, he, uh, you know, he is a principal chiropractor, and he's the president of Cairo Future, which is my malpractice insurance carrier. And yesterday I told you guys that it's very important where you spend your money in chiropractic. It's very important where you spend your money in chiropractic, going and getting your CEUs. It's very important to know who you're spending your money with in your practice and in your malpractice insurance. Um, because there are things going on behind the scenes in chiropractic right now that are, that are very, very scary and, and will uh, dictate the future of how each and every one of us are allowed to practice in our own offices. He's also the vice president of the Foundation of Retrieval Subluxation, which does a lot of research. How many of you uh, had him in, at school at life as a student? Uh, as students, yeah. So your 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 thoughts were probably he was a pain in the ass when you had him, but when you got out of school, you thought it was unbelievable. He probably prepared you properly. So I I I tell you, this guy's all in. You know, he he comes and he teaches and he's done everything for me the last three years as the president, but he's been coming and teaching for the FCS for a long, long time prior to that. So please do me a favor and put your hands together and welcome my good friend, Dr. Matt McCoy. Who said I was a pain in the ass? <laughs> None of my students said that. No, I had you. <laughs> you guys hear me okay? You think I need the microphone? You hear me? If you can't hear me at some point, let me know and I'll switch to the microphone. How's everybody doing? We okay this morning? Bright eyed and bushy tailed? Who was here yesterday and heard my brother speak? Heard my brother. So, those of you that knew me before, now you know what's wrong with me, right? I should have been a cop. <laughs> Carry a badge and a gun. Wouldn't that be nice? It's a few people I'd like to arrest. <clears throat> How did he do yesterday? Was he good? He came at it from a little different perspective than we probably hear in chiropractic, right? Given the world he lives in. Um, let's see who else. You had Mark Schneider, right? A lot of the students remember Mark. I'm sure Mark was good as well yesterday, right? So. This is the, your final uh, run through for this weekend and then you'll be done. Can we get these lights down a little bit? So <clears throat> I have about an hour and a half when all is said and done to present this material to you. How many have heard me speak before? Most of you have heard me speak before. Okay. So typically when I speak for the FCS, I usually do all the risk management stuff. So this time I'm doing clinical science stuff or, or research stuff, I should say. And <clears throat> there's 300 slides in this presentation, okay? Obviously we're not gonna get through 300 slides in an hour and a half, all right? So we'll see how far we get and how deep we can dive into this. 
if you look at the title of the presentation, Global Burden of Vertebral Subluxation, you know, that's pretty lofty, okay? There's no way in an hour and a half, believe it or not, to cover all of the research and science supporting the location analysis and correction of vertebral subluxation, okay? There is a lot of research out there. I was having a conversation with Dr. Kent, Chris Kent, not too long ago, and we were having this discussion about the dark side of the profession, because there is a dark side of this profession. And, you know, the so-called real evidence-based faction in the profession. And when you look at their evidence that they say they have for what they do, they have less evidence for what they do than the subluxation-based faction of the profession has for what we do. It's, it's bass backwards. The problem is that the dark side, the cartel, as it's known, has control of the profession. It has complete control of the licensing, educational, and regulatory functions of the entire chiropractic profession. Okay? And when you have that kind of control, you know, when you have all the marbles, you get to make the rules. Okay? So we'll try to get through as much of this stuff as we can. It's going to be a little bit like drinking through a fire hose, but I'll do the best I can. The point I always like to make when I'm talking about this topic because look, let's face it, in the room this morning, you know, we're at the Florida Chiropractic Society. You guys probably have some embrace of the subluxation concept. So, you know, we're not in the wrong camp here. But the reality is that most of you probably do a bunch of other things in your practice. There's, there's probably not the majority of people in this room that are locating, analyzing, and correcting vertebral subluxations only in your practice. You're probably doing other things. Nothing wrong with that, all right? I'm not judging anybody on any of this stuff, okay? But no matter what you're doing or how you're practicing, we got to come to an agreement at the very least that all of the other stuff, while beneficial to patients and necessary for patients, perhaps, is not unique to the chiropractic profession. So if we talk about this or look at this through the lens of marketing, okay, just look at it from a marketing perspective. Subluxation is our strategic competitive advantage. That's the only thing we own, so to speak. And you know, we could get off on a tangent and talk about the reality that we're losing ownership of that, but that's another discussion for another time. But this is our advantage. This is our competitive advantage. This is the only thing that's going to give us cultural authority. There is plenty of nutritionists out there. There's plenty of exercise physiologists out there. There's plenty of primary health care providers out there, although there's a shortage of them. But they don't need us to do those things. Okay. So let's just understand what our focus is as a profession, even just from a marketing perspective, or should be from a marketing perspective. 
You know, so in this next hour and a half, I'm not going to talk about vaccinations. I'm not going to bash drugs or medicine. I'm not going to go into chemtrails and all that stuff, okay? You know, and, and when you, you spend time on Facebook, you see that these are the things chiropractors are into. These are the things chiropractors are getting all up in arms about, chemtrails. You know, maybe it's a thing, maybe it isn't, I don't know. But is that what we want to focus on as a profession? Chiropractors want to fight GMOs and Monsanto. I mean, really, this is what you want to fight? You want to fight the incestuous relationship between the United States government and one of the largest agricultural companies on this planet? Is really, is that what we want to spend our time and effort on? Is that what we want to take down? Is that what we want to fight? Is that what we want to go out there and march against? <clears throat> you know, when you start looking into this and you realize that you know, six or eight multinational corporations control every single consumer product that we buy. I mean, you know, we could walk out of here real depressed this morning on this. So I think we need to focus on what our unique advantage is. That's why I'm here. And I don't want to, you know, fool anybody to think I'm just here out of my, you know, the goodness of my heart. You know, I didn't leave my eight-year-old son uh, in Atlanta to come down here to talk for two hours, you know, because I just want to hang around with Craig for the weekend, okay? I've got a business to run. I've got products to sell. We'll get that out of the way in the beginning, right? The first is malpractice. Lucas already mentioned this to you. Your homework is, if you're not already insured with us, your homework on Monday morning is to read your policy. Get your malpractice policy out. Make sure you have a copy of your malpractice policy because many, many of you probably don't even have a copy of it. Okay? Get it out and read it. Understand what you have coverage for and what you don't. We have no problem taking our policy and putting it side by side any other policy that's sold in this profession and to stand by or stand behind it and say this is a better policy. And you'll see it if you just put them side by side. And here's the scary thing. I can't do that for you. I can't compare my policy to anybody else's for you. It's against the law. Can you believe that? You know how when you see those commercials for car accident uh, in, or, or car insurance and, and they compare their fees to other insurance carriers? The reason that they do that is because all those Insurance companies have an agreement with one another to allow each other to do that, right? Well, in the malpractice world in chiropractic, there's no agreement among those malpractice companies. We'd love to do it. Nobody else wants to do it. And there's a reason why they don't want to do it, okay? So you're going to have to take the time to compare your policy to others and decide if what you have is what you need or want, okay? Because you don't want the first time that you look at your policy to be the day you get the letter from mybaldlawyer.com saying, you know, we got a suit against you, okay? So you want to know ahead of time what your coverage is. And we feel like we got the best one out there. I'm also here representing, Lucas mentioned the Foundation for Vertebral Subluxation. I'll talk about this organization more because I'm going to talk about some of the research we're doing incorporating it into this presentation. This is a nonprofit organization. Dr. Chris Kent is the president. I'm the vice president. We've got a board of directors. And we have a whole team of researchers I'll introduce you to in a, in a few minutes. And we would love your support. 
I also have a publishing company. I publish research journals and books on subluxation. In fact, this weekend, I got a special for you guys. We'll send you a box of subluxation research. Okay, I'll pass around some flyers or some out, in the decks, uh, out on the desk out there. People say there's no such thing as subluxation. Well, we got enough that we can fit in a box at least. Okay, and I'll send it to you if you want it. You can, if you've got a QR thing, you can scan that and get it. So let's start out talking about uh, epidemiology. Before I get into that, I'll just start sending this around. If you want anything from me, you know, because some of you guys will be taking pictures of slides and all that stuff, that's fine. But I'll send you everything and more. Just put your name and contact information on the clipboards that are going around, and I'll send you everything I got. Uh, and then there's a way for us to communicate after that, okay? So let's do a little epidemiology here because we're talking about the global burden of vertebral subluxation. How many of you believe, and, and pay attention to my wording here, okay? I'm using the word belief. How many of you believe, I'm not asking you for evidence, just asking you if this is something you believe. How many of you believe that vertebral subluxation is a bad thing, okay? Keep, keep your hands up if you, if you, if you, if they're up now. How many of you believe that vertebral subluxation makes people sick and kills them? I believe it. And when I say kills them, I don't mean like right away, right? It could be an insidious process. Okay, good. You put your hands down. So pretty much everybody in this room believes this. Let's do a follow-up survey question. How many of you believe that vertebral subluxation is an epidemic on this planet? That most everybody suffers from this? Everybody, right? Everybody pretty much has their hands up. Now, here's the epidemiological lesson here. We don't have evidence sufficient enough to support either one of those beliefs. You got that? Okay, now this is when it gets serious. Because this is a belief that a large faction of our profession has. That vertebral subluxations make people sick and kill them. And if I put that in public health terms, right, because I'm a public health person, I have a master's in public health. So if we put that, that same statement in public health terms, does vertebral subluxation lead to increased morbidity and mortality? Right? And that sounds a lot better than does it make people sick and kill them, right? That's just the public health term. So you can imagine if there was somebody in public health, now you take any issue in public health, or any issue, or an issue that doesn't even exist yet, but somebody was out there, or a group, or an organization, or a profession was out there saying, listen, there is a disease process, a pathophysiological process, that exists that's epidemic. Most people suffer from it. And it makes them sick and kills them. And then you say, oh my God, well, what is it? And what's the scientific evidence for it? And they would say, well, you know, it's just something we believe. I mean, chiropractors would have their pitchforks out, their torches out, they'd be storming the castle on this, right? When they do it, it's, it's bad, right? But when our profession does it, for some reason it seems to be okay. We've gotten away with that for a long time. The reality is we 
cannot get away with that anymore. We cannot get away with making these statements and these claims that are not backed up by evidence. Okay? That train has left the station in terms of accountability in healthcare and what we're presently dealing with and certainly what the future holds relative to healthcare. Okay? So we need to understand this. If we're talking about mortality, here's a study, here's two studies, okay, by John Hart, a researcher from Sherman College. This was published a number of years ago. He did it as part of his uh, master's in health science thesis. Just look at the title, Correlation of U.S. Mortality Rates with Chiropractor Ratios and Other Determinants. He was looking back in 1995. So basically, the question in his research project was, you know, what are the mortality rates relative to how many chiropractors there are? Guess what he found, right? People die less when there are chiropractors around. And this speaks to the question I asked you in the beginning and had you raise your hand to, right? 1990, here's his other one, 1990 death rates in the U.S. in relation to chiropractors and medical doctors per capita age, income, and education. In this one, he compared it to chiropractors and medical doctors. Well, guess what happens? The more medical doctors, the greater the mortality, right? The more chiropractors, the lower the mortality. And you've seen these things in the past, right, where medical doctors go on strike and people stop dying, right? And there's been a number of these that have happened. And the, the popular press picks it up and it ends up in the scientific literature, okay? <clears throat> the thing that we have going on out there and certainly if you were a student of mine, you're aware of this. And if you've heard me speak before, you've probably heard me talk about this before. But there is this controlling faction within the profession that is actually painting those of us that practice in a subluxation model as frauds. And I am not exaggerating this, okay? I'm not exaggerating as I know that this is going on because this is what I do for a living, right? I deal with this stuff day in and day out with chiropractors from a regulatory and malpractice perspective that are being brought up on charges by regulatory boards or they're being sued. And as part of that whole process, the subluxation or the practice of subluxation correction is being attacked by these people. It's being attacked academically. It's being attacked by our academics being attacked by our regulatory boards, it's a serious problem. Here's one from the great state of Florida, right? You guys are familiar with this other group in Florida, Florida Chiropractic Physicians Association. This is a quote from their president. Subluxation is an unproven myth that is an inappropriate inclusion in any chiropractic education. The term subluxation shall be considered by all authorities outside of the chiropractic community as a myth and therefore an inappropriate standard that is contrary to evidence-based practice. <clears throat> this guy has a larger membership than any other chiropractic organization in the state of Florida. You with me? You see how serious this problem is? They just, I got an email this morning from them, on, I'm on their email list, and I got an email this morning, they're doing a survey, they started a couple of weeks ago, surveying the profession, and they, one of the questions they asked was whether or not you want to prescribe drugs. 68% is the, 
it was more than 68.7%, I think it was. So 69% of the people who responded to their survey said, yes, we want to prescribe drugs. That's not unusual. All of the surveys that have been done on this topic, asking chiropractors if they want to prescribe drugs that have been done in the past decade, are in the majority. The majority of chiropractors in this profession want to be able to prescribe drugs. The schools are not training chiropractors. The schools are training primary care physicians. That's in the accreditation standards. Okay. So we have to understand what's going on out there politically, and that's why it's important for you to be here with the Florida Chiropractic Society. That's why it's important for you to be a member of the Florida Chiropractic Society, to support them, to give to their PAC, to get up to speed on what's going on politically in this profession, because it affects you in practice. And if you don't care about that, for yourself for whatever reason. Maybe you're okay in practice and you're doing fine and you don't see the problem and you don't need to spend your time getting involved in it. Think about the future of this profession. Think about the ability of a profession to be able to express its unique strategic competitive advantage and whether or not we're gonna be able to do that in the next 100 years. This isn't rhetoric, this is stuff that's actually happening. So I hear this from Chiropractors all the time. I've heard it for almost 30 years now. Right? Why bother with this stuff? Because chiropractors can't even agree on the definition of vertebral subluxation. Many of you in this room probably believe that. Probably have this belief that, well, you know, there's all these different definitions. We can't agree on it. That's the problem. If we could just agree on a definition, maybe we could move forward. That's a bunch of bullshit. Okay? Just is. They ought to pass these out on first day in chiropractic college. Right? They're underneath your desk, put them on, and don't take them off for the next four years. The problem is not whether or not chiropractors agree on a definition of vertebral subluxation, and I'll show you that in a second. The problem is that the researchers that we put on these pedestals in our profession are not using the term. They're not using the word they're not using the concept in their research and then subsequently in the literature. So that when a researcher or a public health expert or somebody else, health policy, things of that nature, is looking into what's this subluxation thing about and they go into the scientific literature and they don't find that much on it because the people that did the research didn't use the term didn't use the concept, didn't incorporate it into their research. That's really the problem. There are, this list, what's there, maybe about a dozen models of vertebral subluxation on this list. These are the most common and popular models of subluxation that are typically taught uh, these days, okay? There's more models than that, but these are the main ones, okay? What's common to all of these models are two things, okay? We're talking about whether or not we agree on, you know, a definition of subluxation. The commonalities of all of those models are that they have a biomechanical component and a neurological component. Common to every model of subluxation that's in the scientific literature. That, that's widespread agreement right there. You understand? Okay. 
The other issue here is, beyond agreeing on what the components of a subluxation are, is that there are objective, valid, and reliable tools to measure components of vertebral subluxation, especially those two, biomechanical and neurological components. And I don't want to blow by this too quickly and not stress the importance of these things, okay? Because in the age of accountability in healthcare, the tools that we use to diagnose and treat things, okay, and, and you know, for anybody that's sensitive to the use of the word diagnosis or treatment or any of this other stuff, you know, I'm just trying to use a common language here to have a discussion, okay? Those tools need to be objective. Those measures need to be objective. They need to be valid. That means valid means that what the tool, the tool that you're using actually measures what you purport it to measure. So if you have a thermometer, that thermometer better actually measure temperature, okay? If it does, that means it's a valid tool. It's a valid measurement tool. Reliable means that if you use it today, you're going to get the same reading that you get when you use it tomorrow. Or if I use it and he uses it, we get the same reading, okay? So there are objective, valid, and reliable tools to measure components of vertebral subluxation. You can hang your hat on this. This, isn't, this is not something to argue about. There are people in this profession that want to argue about this because they're ignorant. They just don't know. But these are not things to argue about because this is pretty much set in stone. It's in the scientific literature. It's been done. It's in the bag. We can move on to other things at this point. Here's a list of some of them. Okay? These are objective, valid, and reliable tools to measure components of vertebral subluxation. X-ray, video fluoro, CT, MRI, computerized muscle testing, surface EMG, needle EMG, somatocentury evoked potentials, dermatome evoked potentials, current perception threshold, visual and auditory evoked potentials, nerve conduction velocity, thermography, HRV, function MRI, SPECT imaging, PET, PET scans, laboratory and blood work, and quality of life surveys. I mean, there's plenty of stuff there. You'll notice some things that are not not on the list, okay? There are some things that chiropractors really are in love with that haven't been shown to be the most objective, valid, and reliable things, okay? That's just the way it is. If you don't like that, then I would suggest that you fund some research to determine the objectivity, validity, and reliability of the tools you want to use, right? That's the way this is done. But we have all of this at our disposal already, despite what anybody would say about it. It's one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Kent. Does everybody know who Dr. Kent is? One of the brightest people I've ever met in my life. Certainly one of the brightest people in the chiropractic profession. I love this quote. We have a profession that substitutes ego for evidence, charisma for knowledge, and spiz for skill. All right? Isn't that something? Isn't that so true about our profession? We follow all these big charismatic leaders, these people on these white horses in this profession, especially within the subluxation based faction of this profession. We just love to get pumped up, okay? Then we got to fall back to earth, though. That's the problem. 
where does all this come from? Where does this issue come from relative to evidence for subluxation, against subluxation? Or where does the evidence come that says all chiropractic is good for are musculoskeletal pain syndromes? This is the heart of it, okay? I mean, this wasn't the original one, but this is the most recent one that everybody's going by. This is the playbook. It's, it's known as the Bronfort Report. You see the lead author here, Bronfort. If you look at some of the other authors here, I won't get into calling them out publicly, but if you look up who they are and what they do and who they work for, you'll understand why this report is so important to them because it just furthers their agenda. Now, this report came out in the United Kingdom. This was directed at the United Kingdom. This is from 2010. And essentially, in a nutshell, because I can't go through this whole report, essentially, in a nutshell, they did this review of literature, and they came to the conclusion that you can claim as a chiropractor, and this had to do with claims being made and advertising and things of that nature, that if you go beyond musculoskeletal problems, then you are outside the evidence base, according to this report. Okay? So it's the typical neck pain, back pain, headaches. If you want to say you can help people with neck pain, back pain, headaches, then you're good to go on that, according to the Bromford Report and according to most of the detractors out there relative to subluxation. Now, this took hold in the United Kingdom. It's also taken hold in Australia. Everybody knows what happened to that guy in Australia recently, right? That uh, adjusted that baby on the YouTube video, right? And got hauled before the Australian Regulatory Board and they're in the process of trying to take his license away from him and so forth and so on. Well, that's nothing new. Happens every day. You just don't know about it because you're not living in that world, okay? So this made its way over to Australia, it's made its way to New Zealand, and it's also made its way to the United States. Now, they hear about it more in Australia and the United Kingdom because in, the, in Australia and the United Kingdom, they only have one regulatory board, okay, in each of those countries. In the United States, how many do we have? We have 50, right? Is there 50 states? We have 50 different regulatory boards. So this stuff is going on on a regular basis in all these states. You just don't hear about it because there's just so many states and how, how much attention are you paying to what's going on in North Carolina or South Dakota or any of these other states, okay? We have a case, we actually have two very similar cases right now. I won't tell you what states they're in, but this young chiropractor, just five years out of school, is brought before the board He's practicing in a subluxation, non-therapeutic membership model, okay? And the state board does not like this. And they are going to make an example out of him. And the chairman of the state board told him this at the hearing when they called him before the board. They looked at him across the table, and the chair of the board said, these are his exact words. We are going to shut you down. We're going to shut you down, make an example out of you, and we will shut down others that come like you after you. This is what they're telling a chiropractor who's practicing a in a subluxation mall. They're saying you can't do that. 
A couple of months ago, right before the holidays, I did a Freedom of Information Act request in the state of North Carolina to the North Carolina Chiropractic Board. You're going to love this. And I asked them for copies of the minutes of all of the board meetings for the previous five years. Okay? Because there were rumblings that North Carolina was going through a process of changing their scope, expanding the scope. So I wanted to see what was going on. Okay? And all of this stuff that these boards do is subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Okay? Open records requests in all these states. So I requested these records. <coughs> Long story short, after a lot of back and forth, the executive director of the board finally has to admit to me that they lost them. They lost them. They lost all of the minutes of every single board meeting ever. Not just for the previous five years, ever. I was like, let me get this straight, right? Uh, you, you know, we went back and forth like three or four times in the email as he was responding to my request because I wanted to be clear. They lost them all. You know what they didn't lose? They didn't lose any of the records of disciplinary actions on any of those chiropractors for the, forever, but they lost all of the records on themselves as a board. They don't have, they don't have any. Oh, well, I'm telling you, they got a wake-up call recently because you guys know what happened in North Carolina, right? You've heard of the dentists in North Carolina and the Supreme Court decision? Well, let's, you know, this is kind of off topic, but everybody should be aware of this because this is the reality that's facing our regulatory boards now in the chiropractic profession. And let me tell you something, in the immortal words of Chris Kent, their sphincters are fibrillating, Okay. <laughs> Because in North Carolina, there, was the, there were these folks who wanted to get into the teeth whitening business, but they weren't dentists, okay? So they started opening up these places in the malls and stuff like that, right? Come in and get your teeth white. Well, the dentists got a hold of this, the regulatory board, the dental board, and said, hold it, hold it, hold it. You, you can't do that. You're not dentists. We, we control teeth in this state and everything that's done to them. Well, these people doing the teeth whitening said, you know, no, no, you're not. We, we can do what we're doing. It ended up in the Supreme Court of the United States, not the Supreme Court in the state of North Carolina, the Supreme Court of the United States of America, okay? The dentists lost, okay? And the key word in the decision from the Supreme Court the key term is active market players, okay? So what you have on these regulatory boards, just like you have in the state of Florida, okay, we have, because I'm licensed in Florida, is you have people that sit on the regulatory board judging other chiropractors, making decisions about the practice of chiropractic in the state, and they are active market players in that profession. It's a restraint of trade issue. And the Supreme Court said, can't do it. So this state, well, I'm talking about North Carolina, the chiropractic board. I mean, I don't know what happened that all of a sudden they lost all the minutes of all their meetings. Interestingly, not too long after the Supreme Court decision came out relative to North Carolina. 
right? But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to piece this together, okay? You need to know what's going on in your state. You need to know what your board is doing. And if you really want to have some fun, look at what's going on in this state, okay? Your license in this state, you should know what these people are making decisions about that affect your livelihood, that's for sure, okay? So, got off on a, on a tangent here. But this is the basis right now for all this crap we're talking about, this Bronfer report that says neck pain, back pain, headaches, okay, everything else, no. Hello. That's the North Carolina board. You know, and you look back, if you've been in it, there, there are some people in this room who've been in this profession a long time, right? I mean, I'm going on 28 years, 29 years. I grew up in the profession now, you know, from six or seven years old. So I've been around this profession a long time, and I grew up around the straight faction of this profession. I grew up around the, the DE movement. I went to DE at a very young age. And if you look at what this profession has done, from a political, marketing, and research perspective, you know, people have been asleep at the switch, okay? Our leaders in this profession haven't exactly been looking out for us. And a lot of it has to do with what happened in the Mercedes 80s. Some of you are around, who's around in the Mercedes 80s, right? No deductibles, no co-payments, everybody in the family's got coverage. January 1st rolls around, just change the diagnosis, right? Start at the top, C1, okay, next year, C2, next year, right? Yeah, people know what I'm talking about. That was a great time, wasn't it? Those days are over, right? These poor kids graduating from chiropractic college, $300,000 in debt, student loan debt. And then we have those people that took us through the Mercedes 80s now that are running the profession and running the schools. It's a different world. But this, is, this was the model, right? These were the strategies that we're still trying to make work, right? one spine at a time. Oh, tell the story one spine at a time. We'll change the planet. Bullshit. Utilization in chiropractic is not going up. It's not staying the same. It's going down. That's, the, that's what the numbers say. Tell the story, the hundredth monkey, free chicken dinners, right? Scare care. And then the politics, oh, we're going to change them from within. So our leaders on our side of the profession said, oh, no, we'll, we'll change the profession, but we've got to work with you know, the other side because you've got to have a seat at the table or you're on the menu or all this other bullshit that they try to ram down our throat. And then the research faction said, well, let's just get our foot in the door with low back pain. And as Chris Kent says, it's been bloodied and beaten ever since we stuck our foot in that door, right? Because they just keep trying to slam it shut on our foot. But that's what we've been trying to do. <clears throat> when you're talking about change strategies, trying to change something, you know, and you look at our strategic competitive advantage, you've got to have a marketing plan, you've got to deal with the politics, and you have to have research. Because ultimately, we want to change this. We want to change health policy, don't we? 
if we believe that there is this pathophysiological process that's pandemic, that leads to increased morbidity or mortality, then common sense would say we want every man, woman, and child on the planet to be checked for this thing. We want, we want a mass screening program out there from day one when that child is born, right? Do we want all children to be checked for subluxation immediately after birth? Do we want all women to be checked for subluxation during their pregnancy? Of course that's what we want. That's a health policy issue. Everybody on the, in this country has to be vaccinated at birth. And mothers have to be vaccinated while they're pregnant. That's a health policy. It's not a choice anymore. We'll see what Trump does about it, but it's not a choice. 95% of the people in this country are vaccinated. 95%. We're in the 5% that doesn't go along with this. And we're mixed in with all the crazies, with people who wear tinfoil hats, okay? Doesn't make us look good. But we want to change health policy. Relative to the marketing piece on this, if you don't know who Mark Swerdlick is and his company MindVirus, that's who I would suggest. If you don't know how to do this, if you don't know how to market yourself, ethically, legally, morally, without having to do free chicken dinners and all this other nonsense, go talk to him. John Chung will be speaking this afternoon. Ask John Chung. From day one out of school, followed this model. One of the most successful chiropractors I know already, and I don't think he's been out of school five years. <clears throat> you know, we're talking about risk here. How risky is it to be subluxated? When you look in the literature relative to a public health perspective on risk, this is how it's defined. Risk equals hazard plus outrage. So there's got to be a hazard. There's got to be something that's bad. Okay? In this case, vertebral subluxation. But the other component to the public perceiving a risk that they need to do something about is the public needs to be upset about it. There needs to be outrage about it. The public is outraged about cancer, right? People wear t-shirts, they wear pink ribbons, they wear the bracelets, there's fun runs, there's walks, there's billions of dollars. There's a war on cancer since the 70s. Was that Nixon, right? People are outraged about it. When you break this down, print is kind of small, you have a situation like we find ourselves in where there's a high hazard. We believe vertebral subluxations make people sick and kill them, okay? But there's low outrage. Nobody even knows what they are. And then we have a faction in our profession that say it doesn't even exist. We have a faction in our profession. We just read from the president of the largest chiropractic association in the state of Florida that said subluxation's a myth. So there's no outrage about it. And the marketing experts tell us we won't get into reading these because that's not really what I'm here for. But the marketing experts tell us what we have to do in order to move the masses in our direction. And this is what all these public health people do for, you know, the disease of the week. The problem is that a lot of these typical public health communication messages don't apply to us because we do not have cultural authority as a profession. So we can't necessarily use the tried and true methods to get our message across because the public doesn't trust us. 
public doesn't believe us. What's more likely to kill you, taking something off of the shelf or getting an adjustment? Taking something off that shelf, right? But what do we hear about all the time, right? It's been in the news for the past year, all this stroke stuff. Oh, be careful with the chiropractor. They'll stroke you out. All that sort of nonsense. And it's because of cultural authority or the lack of cultural authority in our profession. <clears throat> so I boil all this down <clears throat> from the research perspective to what I call the so what questions, okay? And you have, you know, your garden variety Mr. Grumpy up there, right? So what? I don't believe it. Harumph, harumph. The so what questions go like this. If subluxations exist, what evidence do you have that you can objectively identify them using valid and reliable means? I already answered that question, right? So we can cross that one off the list. Actually, don't cross it off because there's still other things, you know, ongoing that we should be researching and looking into, right? Because we always want to be on the cutting edge. You want to have the latest and greatest stuff in terms of identifying this pathophysiological process called subluxation. If you can say that to them, though, they're going to say, so what? If they exist and be identified, what evidence do you have that their existence leads to adverse health or other outcomes? Here's where the wheels start to fall off the wagon for us, okay? Because if you can identify the subluxation, great. You can identify that something exists, but is it a bad thing? If something exists, but it's not a bad thing, why should we be worried about it? Why should people take money out of their pocket and pay for it? If cavities in teeth didn't cause anybody any ill health problems, nobody would care about them. Nobody would go to the dentist. Nobody would take care of their teeth. There's no point in it, right? There's no adverse health outcomes related to it. And if we do start to show that there is adverse health outcomes related to this entity called a subluxation, our detractors are going to say, so what? If they exist and you have evidence that they, it leads to adverse health outcomes, what evidence do you have that you can correct them? Can you, can you demonstrate to us that the person today has a subluxation, you did something to them, and now they don't have a subluxation, or it's reduced, or it's less than it was before. Can you measure that improvement? This is where things really fall off the wagon. The wheels really fall off. And if we do start to show them this, They'll say, so what? If you have evidence, you can correct them. What evidence do you have that correcting them leads to improved health outcomes? Because, look, okay, you got a subluxation. You can, it leads to adverse health outcomes. You can identify it. But does fixing it make the person healthy? Does it improve them in some way? If it doesn't, why should the government pay for it? Why should taxpayers pay for that care? Why should it become public health policy? This is the reckoning for us. This, these questions have to be answered if this profession is going to move forward. There's no question about it. You've got to look at this from a, a 30,000-foot perspective. You've got to get out of your bubble. You've got to get your head off that table for a second and look around and understand the bigger picture of what's going on in healthcare in this country and the accountability that is in place. 
This is our research agenda. This is our research agenda as a profession as far as I'm concerned. It certainly is our research agenda for our foundation. And here's the thing, because it, it sounds like a big task, right? The reality is we're in the age of big data, right? You heard of Edward Snowden? You heard of these guys, right? They just, Obama just pardoned Manning, right? Big data. We have the ability to listen in on the phone calls of other world leaders. The Russian government has the ability to manipulate the elections in the United States. You understand? Okay. The technical means to do what I just described exists. This is not a technical problem. Okay. We're in the age of the internet. We have the ability to manipulate large databases and we have advanced statistical methods. Okay? So the technical means exist. It's the will of the profession that's missing. It's the will of everybody in this room to say, hey, you know what? We got it behind this. We got to put our money where our mouth is and support this agenda. That's what's missing in this profession. Yes, sir. You go back, go back to the beginning of my presentation, right? We know, we agree that there's two components at a minimum, right, that are common to all these models. We know that there's objective, valid, and reliable ways to measure those components. So you put those into action. And then you measure what happens as a result of those interventions, okay? I'll give you, a, maybe this will help. I'll give you an example of something some of you may be familiar with. Anybody here ever heard of the Framingham study? Framingham study. Okay, for those of you that don't know, there is this thing called the Framingham study, named for Framingham, Massachusetts. It's been going on since I think 1945 or thereabouts. Okay, and they have been studying population of people and subsequent generations. I don't know what generation they're in at this point, and they're studying their health outcomes. They've been collecting data on these people. The Framingham Health Study is the reason we know what we know about chronic disease, for example, right now. So when you see stuff that comes out about recommendations for chronic disease, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and things of that nature, a lot of that stuff is coming from the Framingham Heart Study, Framingham Study, because they studied all this stuff. You have to track that data, okay? Talking about, you know, massive data gathering and collection and, and analysis. So the technical means exist, the will of the profession is missing. This, this should further answer your question. So we have an agenda, Chris Kent and I, we put together a whole agenda for the foundation here, an agenda to explore the epidemiology of vertebral subluxation. I won't bore you with the details of it, but generally speaking, here's what it centers on, looking at operational models of vertebral subluxation ways to measure it, the epidemiological issues, right? If we believe that everybody on the planet or if we believe that subluxation is an epidemic, well, let's find out if it really is. You can, you can find out. But that's going to take time, effort, money, infrastructure, and other things to do that. Clinical strategies. What are the best clinical strategies to correct a subluxation? I mean, think about all the different techniques out there. And, he, and this is one of the reasons why this hasn't been done. Because it's not in the interest of all techniques, okay, 
to put the cards on the table. Because we might find out that one technique works better than others. And if you understand the history of technique in this profession, you understand that technique in this profession is proprietary. Right? You guys are practicing techniques of old dead people who, when they were alive, made a living by selling their technique to you. Okay? And so if somebody's making money selling a technique but doesn't have evidence for that technique, they might be a little leery of going under the microscope. Okay? This is a, this is a real issue that is going to have to be dealt with in this profession. Because we have an ethical and moral obligation, if subluxations are this bad, we have an ethical and moral obligation to know which methods reduce that subluxation better, quicker, and at less cost, don't we? Right? I mean, that's what we want for all the healthcare, don't we? We want to know what's best. I mean, why does this not apply to us if it applies to every other aspect of healthcare? We're so contradictory sometimes in this profession. So that's our agenda, right? There's a lot more detail to this in the paper. And, you know, if you gave me your information, you'll get a link to all this stuff. You can look at it closer. We have, you know, a bunch of people that are helping support us, including the Florida Chiropractic Society and our mission. We just released our report of the last seven years and what we've done. That's online. You can take a look at it. Here's all the goals. Again, I'm not going to bore you with that. These are, this is the answer to your question. He's not sitting back there now, but this is the answer to his question. He was asking, how do we do it? Here it is. It's all spelled out in detail. The bulk of this, the, 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 the centerpiece of this, though, is, you know, Dr. Kent and I had a conversation seven years ago when we decided to do this. And, you know, Chris is probably 10 or 12, 15 years older than me. I'm 53, so how much longer am I going to be doing this, right? How much longer am I going to put up with this crap, right? So we need to train the next generation of people. Otherwise, who's going to do this stuff? So that's the centerpiece of what we're doing, and we call it Advancing Futures, Research Agenda and Scholarship Initiative. We're partnering with the ICPA, the Malpractice Company, and the Foundation, and our other supporters to do this to train the next generation of researchers okay, on subluxation, not neck pain, back pain, headaches, on subluxation. <clears throat> Imagine being mentored by Dr. Kent, right? Who wouldn't want that? So these are a few of our people doing our research. Curtis Fedorchuk, I'm going to go through. This is just a partial listing of all the stuff he's doing, and he's in full-time practice. He is what's known as a practitioner scientist, and that's what we need. We need people in this room that are doing good clinical work to become practitioner scientists and then partner with the foundation so that we can mine the data in your practice and then publish the research on. <clears throat> Doug Lightstone is a research fellow with the foundation. Christy, same thing. Simon Senzon, you guys heard of Simon Senzon? He's doing some work with us. He sits on our independent review board. Uh, this is our statistician. Joel Alcantara, you heard of him. He sits on our IRB board. Aaron did some work at the World Health Organization. Christy's our executive director. Eric was one of our first scholarship recipients. And Quinette's a, a fellow with our program. All these people, I, I mean, 
We could spend a lot of time on that, and I won't ever get to talking about subluxation, okay? So hopefully that kind of gives you some background about where we are as a profession and where we need to go, all right? So now let's talk about some of the good stuff that we do have. Brains are very big in chiropractic right now, right? Everybody wants to talk about brains and the effects of adjusting on brains. So we're doing some of that at the foundation. Well, I'll talk about some of the things the foundation's doing, doing to get us started. But just as an example, this was a paper came out a few years ago, you probably heard about metabolic changes after chiropractic spinal manipulation for neck pain. Now, I have this paper and the next one up here for, for reasons. I told you before that the problem wasn't that we don't agree on a definition. The problem is that we don't use the terminology in our literature, and this is an example of this, okay? If you don't understand this, at this point, hopefully in the next two minutes you will and you, and you won't have to deal with it again. Spinal manipulation, and again, this is one of those things that's not an argument. There's nothing to argue about. It's a simple definition of a term, okay? Spinal manipulation is not the same thing as an adjustment. It's not the same thing. Two different things, okay? And, and believing or wishing doesn't make it so. Chiropractors are, you know, a lot into magical thinking. It doesn't apply here, okay? Spinal manipulation adjustment, not the same thing. Articular dysfunction and vertebral subluxation, not the same thing, okay? They're not the same thing. You can't use these terms interchangeably. Unfortunately, some of these researchers out there in our profession are using these terms interchangeably or not using them at all, okay? They're not using subluxation, they're not using adjustment, they're only using spinal manipulation or articular dysfunction. So this paper, you know, chiropractors get all excited about this, oh, spinal manipulation is good for, it, it changes the brain. Spinal manipulation changes the brain. Well, physical therapists do spinal manipulation, osteopaths do spinal manipulation, occupational therapists do spinal manipulation, massage therapists do sp spinal manipulation is a common domain procedure that is not unique to the chiropractic profession. It's not our unique strategic competitive advantage. So this doesn't just help us, it helps everybody that's doing spinal manipulation. Okay? And by the way, it's not rocket science to think that if you do something in the periphery of the body, that it affects the brain. Okay? My eight-year-old understands that. But just because we're talking about brains, people get all excited. Oh, my God, look at what we do. We changed the brain. <laughs> no shit, Sherla. Lewis. But they put chiropractic there. Well, well, ra well <laughs> actually, rather than just after spinal manipulation yeah. for neck pain, so at least they're... We got to take sort of everything we can get. <laughs> <laughs> everything we can get. This is the other one that went around, right? This, was, this is from Facebook, okay? So you look at the clickbait, research beyond a doubt, adjusting the subluxation spine changes brain function. Manipulation of dysfunctional spinal joints alters, uh, affects sensory motor integration prefrontal cortex, right? If you go through this whole paper, it's spinal manipulation, spinal manipulation, spinal manipulation, articular dysfunction, articular dysfunction. 
Okay? That's not what the Facebook promotion says, but that's what the actual research says. And I can guarantee the people that are going to change health policy are not looking at the Facebook post. Okay? <clears throat> so we're going to do some stuff. We're doing some stuff with functional MRI. And I'll talk about what our focus is going to be on this stuff. The reality is this has been done before. This goes back to 1998. This is one of the first covers of the Journal of Vertebral Subluxation Research. It's hard to see these images with the lighting, but you can kind of see lots of color on this side in the brain, and over here you don't see a lot of color. Okay? This was pre-adjustment. This was post-adjustment. That was a network spinal adjustment. Okay? Network spinal analysis was done. And basically what it showed was that after an adjustment, the brain requires less energy, less glucose, less metabolism to do a functional task after an adjustment. So this stuff has been done before. Might be the first time some people are hearing about it, but first time it was done was back in the 90s. We're also looking at brain waves, specifically a P300 wave especially HRV, surface EMG, thermal scanning, and somatocentric evoke potentials. The areas that we're focusing on, though, the populations are military veterans, seniors, children, and ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And the maladaptations we want to look at are things like neurodegenerative diseases, PTSD, concussions, depression, neurodevelopmental disease. Uh, right now, our focus is on autism and functional disorders. Okay, so we apply those measures, functional MRI imaging with neurological function testing in those special patient populations. These are some of the things that can be done in addition to the subluxation measures. You can use all of these tools to measure the effects of an adjustment to reduce a vertebral subluxation. Right? So you've got to determine first if there's a subluxation, you've got to do the adjustment, and then you've got to measure the effect on the subluxation as a result of that adjustment. And then the secondary effects using these measures. And then, of course, like I said, measuring components of the subluxation along with it. So we have a study underway already. We have two studies underway looking at post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans looking at re reduction of subluxation. One is using Gonstead technique, the other is using an upper cervical protocol. This one's real exciting. I can't tell you too much about it right now. We gotta kinda keep it a little bit of a secret about who, what, where, when, and why, just because, you know, there's some enemies out there. This is the title of the study, the cerebrospinal fluid flow and symptom improvement in patients with ALS before and after high velocity low amplitude adjustment to the upper cervical spine. It's going to involve an exam, pre and post x-rays, a pre-MRI, an adjustment, and a post-MRI, looking at cerebrospinal fluid flow. Okay. Now, there's been some work in this area upper cervically, right, but using specific upper, upper cervical adjustments, but not everybody does that. So we said, well, let's look at what most chiropractors do and see if that has the same effect, okay, or maybe better or maybe not. The other thing we're looking into is basic science stuff. Believe it or not, when it comes to anatomy, everything has not been discovered, right? Everything's not been discovered. This was in, in the 
news recently, structural and functional feature, features of central nervous system, lymphatic vessels, right? These anatomists discovered these lymphatic vessels in the central nervous system. So we have hooked up with a university who has uh, an anatomy professor there. And this anatomy professor has a team of graduate students. And his graduate students need projects. We're going to give him those projects. And the intent is to discover something new relative to vertebral subluxation. Okay? <clears throat> Talking about basic science here, one of the biggest requests that I get from chiropractors is hey, you got a copy of the Windsor studies? Anybody heard of this? Okay, these are the Windsor autopsy studies that were done back, I don't know, turn of the century. I mean, this, this thing is old, right? Personally speaking, I don't think we need to redo the Windsor studies. It was already done. It already showed that the organs okay, supplied by the nerves coming from segments of the spine that are degenerated, misaligned, are diseased. It's already been done. It's in the bag. It's in the can. But there's people out there, detractors, that say, well, it's so old. It needs to be replicated. Okay. Well, maybe that's one of the things we'll replicate, if that'll make people happy. Right. Here's one current that we just finished, study we just finished and published. Impact of isometric contraction of anterior cervical muscles on cervical lordosis. Okay, there's the paper. I was a co-author on this. Let me give you the nuts and bolts to this. Most of you probably deal with personal injury. Many times you send your x-rays out to a radiologist or the patient already had x-rays taken and you got a radiology report. And you're looking at the radiology report and there's a loss of cervical lordosis and the great God almighty radiologist says it's due to what? Muscle spasm. Muscle spasm. Well, here's what I can tell you now. That's 100% grade A bullshit. Right. And there's the study that proves it. It's been put to bed. Get yourself a copy of this study. The next time a radiologist sends you one of those stupid reports, you send them a copy of this paper. Better yet, take him to lunch. Get to know him. Educate him on subluxation a little bit. Develop a radiology friend. Okay? So that when he reads these films next time, he understands that what he thinks he's seeing isn't reality. Okay? Telomere length. This is the other exciting thing. This project is already underway. I spoke to Dr. Vodorchuk the other day. He has a second patient enrolled in this study. This is a prospective study on the effects of chiropractic adjustment and subluxation reduction on telomere length. Why do we care about telomere length? Because it's tied to lifestyle, cancer, and aging. Okay? So telomeres are these little things on the ends of chromosomes. Every time uh, they replicate, the telomere shortens, and the shorter they get, the closer you are to death. Right? Imagine if it can be shown that chiropractic adjustments lengthen telomeres. That'll be pretty profound. Right? Well, we're going to find out pretty soon. Right? He's getting ready to do the first post-test on both of these first two subjects that he did. Um, I forget the number of subjects he's enrolling. I think it's about 100 or 120. 
Okay? And keep in mind, these people are not going to be doing any other changes in their life. They're not going to be changing their diet. They're not going to be changing their exercise habits. They're not doing anything else different. The only thing that's different in terms of the intervention is now they're getting their subluxations correct. That's just the proposal. Diabetes. We started out doing a single case study. This was just presented at the research conference at, uh, at Sherman at the end of last year. Uh, this, was a single, this one was a single case study looking at A1C levels and blood glucose levels in type 1 diabetics. You with me? Type 1. Right? Type 1 is not lifestyle. You understand? Type 1 is they're born with it. Type 1 is the pancreas don't work. At least that's what the belief is, right? Genetic. So this guy, sorry, this guy was a 26-year-old type 1 diabetic male. He came in for pain in the neck and upper back. He had a history of diabetes for over 20 years, so he was diagnosed at 6 years old with type 1. They did their adjusting. X-rays and MRI showed a lordotic segment at T18-9. A lordotic segment at T18-9. <coughs> We all, now, this was a case study. We also have a prospective study now based on this enrolling type 1 diabetics, okay? And Curtis has a number of these people already. And so far, every single one of them, type 1 diabetics, have a lordotic segment at T8-T9. This guy also had a T8-T9 disc herniation, okay? The way we're doing this is continuous glucose monitoring continuous glucose monitoring throughout the entire day, okay? So the data on this is unbelievable because you're capturing the levels of glucose in this person every day of the week, 24 hours a day, okay? Including pre and post adjustment, all right? So his average, so before he started getting adjusted, this was his blood glucose level and his A1C value, okay? Made no changes in his diet. This just tells you what the normals are and all that kind of stuff. I won't waste time on this. Here is the analysis of his x-ray. Okay. There is the lordotic segment in T8, T9. This is actually showing you pre and post. So it started out at negative 0.1 degrees, and his post x-ray is at 4.1 degrees. So he fixed that. He reduced the subluxation. The bone moved, right? Remember, the, remember what we talked about, the so what questions. Did you really move that bone? He really moved that bone. Okay? There is objective evidence on x-ray of that change. Okay? Thirty-six times, thirty-six visits over eight weeks. Subluxations were reduced, blood glucose and A1C values improved each week. Here's, the, here's just a couple of the graphs. This is week one. Let me orient you here, okay? This is time of day at the bottom. Okay? This is day of the week. Oh, no, this is time of day here at the bottom. This is the blood glucose values, and the different lines are the different um, days of the week. Okay? So up here, not good. So if you look at the bottom one after eight weeks, right, all, everything is calmed down. The blood glucose levels have lowered. Okay? That's continuous blood glucose monitoring. And then we can also then take out pre and post adjustments out of that data if we wanted to and look immediately what happened. 
and he was doing this along with the patient while it was happening. So his blood glucose uh, average went down to 138 after eight weeks. A1C level went down by 1%. The company that makes this monitor in their clinical studies were not able to get people's A1C down 1%. I think Curtis said they were able to do it in one patient. Okay. And this was done without any diet modification. So now we're doing this in a pro prospective clinical study. <coughs> And keep in mind now, there's other studies out there on chiropractic and diabetes. Okay, we're not the first. Dickinson did some work on it. Here's a list, one, two, three, four, maybe about a dozen uh, case studies and small clinical studies on chiropractic and diabetes, but most of these are type 2. Right? Lifestyle can change type 2 diabetes, okay? But can, can an adjustment turn that pancreas on? Right? That's the key. <coughs> The other one we're excited about is this autism study we're doing. We're just getting this underway. We are, we're going to enroll 150 kids. We're going to use this thing called a behavior assessment system for children and an autism rating scale. We're going to collect some other data like the age of parents, other environmental factors in their history and intake. We're also going to look at subluxation, x-ray, thermal scan, surface EMG, HRV. The co-investigator on this, right, lead investigator is Curtis Vidorchuk and myself and Dr. Kenner involved in this. The PhD is a director of special ed for the county where we're getting the children from. She's going to send us these kids. She's interested in this because she became a chiropractic patient. She saw the changes in herself, and she's like, hey, could this help kids with autism? We're like, well, let's find out. And she's all on board with this, okay? Do you know that there has not been any study other than single case studies on autism in chiropractic? There is one study that compared upper cervical care to full spine care, a small clinical study that was done almost 10 years ago. Right? We talk about how we can help these kids, but have we done the work? Some other stuff we just published, we just uh, were involved in uh, this paper that was published. This is looking at Pierce uh, system technique in uh, improvement in scoliosis. It's had 14 uh, patients with adolescent idiopathic scoliosis and 22 patients with subscoliotic spinal curvatures. And guess what it showed? Right? These curvatures improved after chiropractic care. Some of these were single adjustments. Okay? And now what they're in the process of doing is doing a follow-up study to see if the changes maintain themselves or do the curves come back. <clears throat> We're looking at reliability of heel tension. Okay? So this has to do with you know, your objective measures. Are they reliable? Are they valid? You know, when you feel those, that heel tension and you know, Octavio tries to feel it, do we both feel the same thing or not? See, because if our measures, if, our, if the way we're analyzing for subluxation are invalid and reliable, then the whole thing goes out the window. <clears throat> Open adjusting. We were involved in this paper. You, you may not be aware of this, but there are chiropractors who control this profession that think it's unethical for you to adjust in an open environment. How many adjust in an open adjusting environment, right? Yeah, so there are chiropractors who are in control in this profession, and this is especially true in the United Kingdom and Australia, that say it's unethical to do that. Where do these people come from? But they control our profession. 
So we're involved in a study to show, no, it's not unethical, and the patients like it. Just to sort of look at this differently, right, in terms of how to capture this. If you look at some of these diseases, disorders, syndromes we've been talking about, Parkinson's, PTSD, dysautonomia, concussion, sudden cardiac death, neurodevelopmental disorders, functional disorders, we could put immune stuff in here too, and the role of vertebral subluxation in all of these things, right? What is the role of subluxation? What is the contribution of subluxation? Because look, they're multifactorial, okay? Like I said at the beginning of my talk, when I'm not putting down nutrition, not putting down exercise, not putting down other things that people need, but what is the central nature of subluxation in all of these problems? <clears throat> this is, some of you might be old enough to remember this poster, right? I had one of these in my clinic in Margate, right? The silent killer. And chiropractors got beat up for saying this, right? I mean, just look at that list. We're not, we're not far from the truth on this. The research has to bear it out, though. Who recognizes who this is? Anybody know who this is? That's Katie May. You know who Katie May is? Right? Katie May is the Playboy model that went to the chiropractor after she had an injury at a photo shoot and ended up suffering a dissection and a stroke. Right? She was all over the news, on TV, the whole nine yards. Right? We've been dealing with it for the past year from you know, a malpractice company perspective in terms of just dealing with trying to help chiropractors understand this, dealing with the you know, the fallout from a marketing perspective on chiropractors and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, in this instance, we're getting blamed for causing a cardiovascular or a, a, a vascular disease, okay? What's the reality about all of this, okay? If you look at healthcare expenditures, we're spending all our money on all these chronic illnesses. Cardio, cardio and stroke are at the top, right? Let's understand that these people are walking into your office, okay? I refer to these people, if you've heard me speak in the past year, I refer to these people as walking, talking bags of inflammation, right? I mean, you know at this point, if you've been paying attention in chiropractic or even outside of chiropractic, that the key word is inflammation these days, right? Inflammation is being tied to everything that's going on, all these chronic diseases, multiple sclerosis, immunological disorders, cardiovascular disease, okay? What's the role of inflammation in all of this? Look at the risk factors. Now, if you think about the risk factors related to cardiovascular disease, you have to think about the role of chiropractic in reducing subluxation on those risk factors, okay? Does chiropractic have an effect on blood pressure, on cholesterol? and these other things that go into risk factors related to cardiovascular disease. <clears throat> Metabolic syndrome's a big one, right? <clears throat> People at Walmart, right? <clears throat> I, just, I just bought a little condo down here and I have had the unfortunate experience of spending a lot of time in Walmarts this past week. <laughs> Quite an experience. 
cover of Time magazine, the secret killer, inflammation. The surprising link between inflammation, heart attacks, cancer, Alzheimer's, and other diseases, and what you can do to fight it, right? The cover of Time magazine. They're calling it the secret killer. We call subluxation the secret killer, right? They'll put you in jail for that. Remember the, the chart that I showed you that looked a little similar to this? I, I need you to understand that I created that other chart before I saw this. Then I saw this, and I'm like, holy crap. I thought I had something unique, all right? See how they're tying inflammation to pretty much all those things that I had on my list? So hopefully at this point in the presentation, right, we're, we're starting to make some connections between all of this. What time do we have? What is it? Get out of here. It's 9.30 already? I told you I wouldn't get through it. Let's see. What should I do? I'm going to cut to the chase. I'm going to go to the end. How's that? And then all the slides in the middle. Remember I said there were 300 slides? <laughs> you can have them all. Just make sure I get your email address. Let's fast forward. We got through most of it, right? Need about 15 hours to go through all this, right? You hear that, Craig? Give me 15 hours next time. Here's the thing with all this, right? You want to be successful in chiropractic, my opinion, you got to be the authority. I learned that from Sid Williams, the DE, right? You are the authority. Be certain. Know what normal and abnormal is. Know how to communicate what normal and abnormal is in your practice. Meet your patients where they are, but you got to take them where they need to go, right? People that walk into your office, they don't understand where they need to go. So you're going to have to do some change strategies with them. Understand what normal is. Don't make it more complicated than it is, right? Lateral cervical view, Mrs. Jones, this is the way your neck is supposed to look. You're supposed to have a normal curve in your neck. The vertebra is supposed to be nice and square. The discs in between all your vertebrae are supposed to be the same height. You shouldn't have any pointed, jagged edges on these bones. And the first bone in your neck right there, it should be taken off like an airplane because this is where your brain stem is. That's where your brain stem is. And you let that sink in for a second, because she doesn't know what a brainstem is, but she knows it's important. And you got her attention at that point. And then you show her her x-rays. And then you be quiet. And you say, Mary, what do you see? Let her talk it through. Let her tell you what's going on with her films. And whether she gets it right or doesn't, it doesn't matter. Let that neuroplasticity sink in so that she understands and owns her own subluxation. So she takes responsibility or he takes responsibility for their health. But you tell her, look, in this picture here, this person has lost the normal curve in their neck. The discs are still okay. The bones are still okay. But there's no normal curve anymore. 
Now, if that's not corrected over time, the body responds, the innate intelligence of the body responds by putting bone spurs here. You've heard of arthritic changes and degenerative changes. Well, Mary, that's what this is. And the nerves that come out between these vertebrae now that go to all the organs and muscles in your body are now being compromised and being interfered with. And over time, if it's not corrected, the only thing the body knows how to do is fuse those segments together. And once they're fused together, there's nothing you can do about it except maybe alleviate some pain. That's the bones, right? Then you got to get to the nervous system. Hopefully you're doing something to measure the nervous system. Again, show them what normal is. This is a normal paraspinal surface EMG. No debate, no argument about it. We know what the tension is supposed to be throughout the entire spine. Okay? That research is done. It's in the bag. That's what normal is. This is you. This one or this one? Which would you rather be? All right. And you can get into explaining all the numbers if you're really analytical, if the patient is analytical, but most people aren't. They're going to see that. They're going to understand that that ain't that. And that there's something going on with their nervous system. You want to show them and teach them that the autonomic nervous system do thermal scanning. All right, there should be no difference or you know, 0.5 degrees from one side to the other, but essentially there should be no difference between the temperature bilateral and the spine. Again, no argument about that. That research has been done. It's in the bag. HRV, one of the best tools we have now in chiropractic is HRV. HRV, heart rate variability, measures adaptability the ability for the person to adapt to their environment. People who have had previous heart attacks and then have HRV scans that are bad are going to die from their next heart attack. That's what the research says because they don't have the ability to adapt. Now if their subluxations are reduced and you reduce all of this sympathetic storm that they have going on, then they're going to be better able to adapt to their environment. Show them the blood and guts. Or show it to yourself. Understand it yourself, right? Here's looking at a vertebra from the top down. Look at how nice and healthy and juicy that disc is. Look at how nice and open that central canal is. There is the lateral recesses where the nerves come out of, all nice and clear, clean, no interference there. Here's the lateral view. Look at how healthy that looks, huh? That's good enough to eat. Red velvet cake with a nice Chianti. Look at how nice and healthy that disc is. Nice, clear borders and margins. What's all this stuff in the middle of the bone? What is that? Anybody? What's in the middle of the bone there? What's all that red stuff? Bone marrow. What does the bone marrow do? What's it make? Makes all the blood cells in your body your entire life. You understand? Go to, a, go to a textbook on the formation of blood cells and read it. If you don't believe in the innate intelligence of the body, after you read that chapter, you'll be a believer. What goes into the formation and, and the differentiation of all different types of blood cells? Which would you rather have, that or that? Look at what's going on in this spine. There's so much degeneration here, it doesn't even fit on the slide. Look at the compression of the spinal cord. Look at what's happening to these discs. 
How, what would this look like? What would it be called if this was an x-ray, this, this stuff here? What would that be? Vacuum phenomena, right? So you take an x-ray, you see vacuum phenomena, you need to understand that there is significant pathology going on there. Order an MRI. Send that patient for an MRI. What's that yellow stuff? Fibro fatty infiltration of the bone marrow. It's part of the degeneration process. What do you think is happening to the ability of that bone marrow to produce blood cells with that fibro fatty infiltration? Now, I don't have a randomized clinical controlled trial on that, but I have some freaking common sense. There we go. How'd you like to have that? Right? There are people out there who say, oh, the hard bone on soft nerve model of subluxation is outdated. Bullshit. Especially in South Florida. These people are walking into your office every day. They're your bread and butter. They got hard bones on soft nerves. That model is alive and well in Florida. Oh, it's normal aging, the radiologist says. Really? Let me ask you, Mr. Radiologist with 20 years of education, how old is that disc? Well, it's 70 years old. How old is that disc? Not normal fucking aging. They're the same age. <laughs> it's a mobilization degeneration secondary to vertebral subluxation and the pathomechanics associated with that. That's what it is. That's not cancer, by the way. That's degeneration, immobilization degeneration, secondary to vertebral subluxation. And people are walking around with this level of pathology all over South Florida. Just go into Publix. This Publix probably within two miles of here, right? You see them go down the milk aisle. Uh, I need a half a dozen eggs, right? They've been walking around like that for years. Nobody went up to them and said, hey, you, you should see a chiropractor. This level of pathology wouldn't be tolerated if it was any other disease. They would cut it out. They would burn it. They would use chemotherapy. But we tolerate this as chiropractors. We put up with this, oh, well, it's just, you know, you get old, you get the... This stuff kills people. And this is where it starts, right? It all starts here. That baby's head is supposed to be going the other way. Well, get that baby out one way or the other, right? Welcome to the world. Forceps didn't work. Let's use a vacuum. Let's try the shoehorn. Finally got that vacuum on there, right? Now, you can't appreciate it really because the vacuum is still on there, but you'll see the deformity of this baby's head in a second. All right, look, there it is. I mean, look at the care and, and concern being uh, given to the baby's neck, right? There, you can see the deformity there. It comes off the slide, it's so bad. I mean, this is the way this child's coming into the world. This is our first experience. Hello, world! Subluxated at birth. And then it doesn't latch, it doesn't feed, doesn't sleep. They give them drugs for that. Baby gets a little old, he gets into school, can't sit still, can't pay attention. They give him drugs for that. Maybe gets into high school, right? He's having trouble with his girlfriend. He's depressed. He's whatever. Give him drugs for that. 
Maybe when he's 30, 40, 50, 60, ends up in a chiropractor's office with stage four subluxation degeneration, right? Well, Medicare will only pay for 12 visits and they won't pay for the x-ray. And we give in to that. We put up with that bullshit as a profession and as individuals. Look at the distance between the occiput and the shoulder on that baby. Think about what's happening to the ligaments, to the muscles, to the spinal cord, to the meninges. Look at the separation, occiput, shoulder. I mean, you can see the, the veins in the baby's neck. There's so much tension on that. And this is the way somebody's coming into the world. We've got to help these people from the beginning. But we're going to have to do it the right way because the way we've been doing it is not working and has not worked in this profession. It can be done. Right? The technical means exist. This is the star system Alpha Centauri. Okay? Alpha Centauri. It's 23 trillion miles from us. 23 trillion miles. 4.73 light years, I think. Okay? It would take the space shuttle 165,000 years to get there. Okay? New Horizons, a spacecraft that just passed Pluto, if they re changed its course and headed it towards Alpha Centauri, it would take it 78,000 years to get there. Okay? Well, guess what? We're spending, sending these little spaceships there. A Russian billionaire, Stephen Hawking, and Mark Zuckerberg are building these little spaceships. That are, these things are no bigger than your hand. Okay? They're going to send them up into orbit. This thing is going to carry them there, release these little satellite spaceships, and send them to Alpha Centauri. It's only going to take them 20 years to get there, they say, because they're going to use this new technology, solar sails and this other stuff that are going to be deployed from these little satellites. And the reason we're going to Alpha Centauri is because there is a planet there that we think might have life on it. You hear what I'm saying? We have the technical ability as a species to send a spaceship 23 trillion miles to another star system to see if there's life on another planet. Do you think we can figure out the subluxation issue? Do you think we could just figure that out? Thanks for a great morning. I'll see you guys soon. Take care. Can I just get, who's ever got my clipboards, if, if I can get, thank you.